You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. What were you doing when you were 20? I was at university working part-time as a waiter. Peter O'Brien was starting his first teaching job. It was 1960. The school was in Weabonga, two days' travel from Armadale, and he had 18 students aged between 5 and 15 years old. Before he started, Peter already knew that the school inspector had found it difficult to retain staff. And this was his first gig. Inexperienced, isolated, and yet somehow still inspired. Peter has written about this experience in his book, Bush School. Hi, Peter. Welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Hi, Siobhan. What were your first impressions of Weabonga? The first impressions were a bit mixed. Um, It was my first time out of the city. I'm a city boy, always have been, even for the two years that I was at Weabonga. I still thought of myself as a city boy. So my first impressions were pretty mixed. I found it to be very isolated and very remote, uh, much smaller than I had hoped it would be. Uh, Set in the mountains, so quite beautiful uh, in terms of its geography and setting. But I was a bit bowled over at first by the remoteness and the isolation. And then I felt a sense of alienation, and I'll explain that to you a little later. But, yeah, I was looking forward very much to working with the children. I was looking forward to being a teacher in charge and having five or six grades all at the same time. But uh, the location was just daunting. Do you remember your first day at the school? I do, very very clearly. 60 years ago, seems (laughs) impossible, but I remember it very clearly. Um, My first day in the school was actually on a Saturday. I'd arrived in Weabonga on the Friday, and I'd been given the key to the school and I'd spent the whole of the weekend, the Saturday and the Sunday, in the schoolroom getting ready. But the first day with the children was the following Monday and I can remember that very vividly indeed. It wasn't at all like I expected. And and what happened? Can you describe what it was like? Well, there were 18 children that were brought along by various parents to be enrolled. There were some uh, 13 boys and five girls. The oldest was a a young lad of of 13, nearly 14, sir, as he said, and the youngest was a five-year-old, just turned five, a little boy. And... uh, After the parents had left, I was looking forward to having the children with me, but they weren't there. I couldn't find them. (laughs) (laughs) None of them had come into the schoolroom, and so I had to go and find these kids. And uh, I did find them, of course. They were all there in the schoolyard, but the schoolyard was an acre or more in size, and they were scattered about the schoolyard. They were doing their best to avoid me. (laughs) It took a while to gather them in and to get them settled down and to get them relaxed enough to start to um, have a sensible and happy discussion. And how do you assess education at that point? Like where where were they at? and, And did you have a big job ahead of you? 
Um, I had been informed by the inspector who was in Armidale, which is quite a way away from Weabonga, uh, not that far geographically, but to travel to to Armidale was a day, a day and a half. Uh, he had warned me that the standards that the kids had been able to reach in the school were not as high as he had hoped, and he had also warned me that he had found it very difficult to keep staff at the school, that there'd been a frequent um, turnover of, of teachers in the place, and that had had an impact on the children's education and performance, and so they were somewhat behind where the inspector had hoped that they would be. And what was their attitude to learning? You, you mentioned that they were kind of running away from you um, that first day. Did you have to convince them it was worthwhile coming to school? No, not at all. Um, after we'd joined together in the classroom and they had settled down a little, I just asked them to talk about themselves, to tell me what it was that they'd been doing over their holiday break, what they enjoyed doing, how they spent their time, and so on. And, and they began to to break down some inhibitions or shyness that they had. Uh, they began to talk quite well. So after a while, I asked them what they wanted out of school. And they all hopped in to tell me they wanted to be there with their friends. <laughs> One of the great things about a small school in a small country village is that it brings children together from all the surrounding properties and they get to spend time with each other that they wouldn't otherwise do. So being at school was quite attractive to them. They liked being at school. They liked their friends. They wanted to be there. When I asked them why they thought they were there apart from friendship, they said their parents had instilled in them the knowledge that they were there to learn. (laughs) Their parents had emphasised the kids were there to work and to learn. So what what were your biggest challenges in that first year? The biggest challenges were simply the amount of preparation I had to do, just being ready each day for so many different groups at such different levels in each of the curriculum areas. So it took a lot of time and a lot of work, Siobhan. I was there from very early in the morning. I tried to get there just after seven and uh, get ready for the day. Now, getting ready for the day meant for me at that stage, six years ago, preparing the board. You wouldn't do that now, but that's what it meant then, preparing the board, preparing all the activities that were going to take the children's time during the day. And then after school, the children left at 3.30. I'd be there until it was dark. I'd be there till five o'clock in the winter or six o'clock or 6.30 in the summer. That was the biggest challenge, just just the amount of time and the amount of preparation that I had to put into it so that the children were best served by me and I was helping them in the best possible way I could. That doesn't leave much time for um, leisure, it doesn't sound like. And you're in a, you're a city boy in a small country town. What was it like being part of that community? Because everyone would have known who you were. Yeah, but I didn't know who they were. It was not easy. Uh, I have to tell you that the first couple of months in that community, I was not involved in a community at all. 
I had been given accommodation in one of the village homes. There were five houses in the village scattered across a fairly large area of village. And I'd been given a bed in one of those homes. Now, the bed happened to be on a veranda and uh, the bedroom had been constructed by the landlord tacking up some tar paper across the veranda <laughs> posts. I don't know whether people know what tar paper is anymore, but it's a heavy paper impregnated with asphalt to make it waterproof. So my bedroom consisted of a veranda with a bit of tar paper on one side and a bed. That was it. Wow. Nothing else. That was it. And... I had my meals always on my own. There were children in the home that I actually had in the school, three children in the home, but I never sat with them to have a meal and I never sat with them in the evening just to chat or to spend time together. I never spoke much at all with the landlord, Laurie, who uh, was the master and father of the house. I spoke occasionally with Jill, um, and she gradually opened up a bit to me. But the first two months, I was literally almost on my own. Why do you think and, that was? Uh, there was a sense of, of uh, poverty in the home, and it was real poverty in that house. And they had taken me in because no other family in the village or on the surrounding properties would take me in. So the only way that that school could be open was for Laurie and Jill, my landlord and landlady, to give me a bed. And that's literally what they'd done. They'd given me a bed. But they were very unused to having someone, a stranger, living in their home. And they were both very confronted by that. So they were not at all outgoing, not at all in any way communicative with me. And the remainder of the village I just hadn't met. Um, I hadn't had an opportunity to meet them apart from when the parents came that very first day to deliver their children into my care. I hadn't seen most of them again for eight weeks. It sounds really lonely. It was <laughs> Lonely, indeed. And it was not only the loneliness that was getting at me, but all that Laurie and Jill could provide in terms of meals was rabbit. Oh, goodness. So it was isolating and it was challenging in terms of diet and feeling of goodwill and so on. It was a most unpleasant time in my life. The only thing that kept me going, Siobhan, were the kids. So that kept me going. But at the end of two months, I knew that I couldn't keep it up. Something had to change. And I decided that if something didn't change by the end of the first term, then I would uh, seek a transfer to a school where life could be better, or I would resign from teaching altogether. And so what happened? Um, fortunately, things did change. I say in the book that the stars realized <laughs> <laughs> Something happened. I first thing that happened was that I met a pair of septuagenarian pensioners, as I call them, <laughs> Personethel. I met Personethel. They lived in one of the village cottages, but I'd never met until one 
late afternoon when I was walking home from school, first attracted my attention and we introduced each other. And then I went into their home and we enjoyed each other's company two or three times a week for the rest of the time that I was there. They were just delightful. Old age pensioners living in circumstances which no one would now believe. They lived in three huts. They were tin huts, and that's literally all they were. They had been built in the 1890s, so by the time I got there, they were 70 years old and they were falling down. They had dirt floors. They were not lined. They had no ceilings. They were the most primitive of accommodation that you could believe. Nevertheless, person ever were wonderful. And then... On the weekend following that meeting with Person Ethel, I discovered that there was tennis played on the tennis court. The village had a, a village tennis court, and I'd never seen it in action. But that was because each Sunday I was buried away in the school getting ready for the next week, and I hadn't been able to see what was happening on the tennis court. But each Sunday afternoon, seven or eight, of the local people came together to play tennis. And I discovered that after I'd been there for about eight weeks and I went the next Sunday and that changed my life again. And so how long did you end up staying in Weabonga for? I was there for two years. In the 1960s, uh, one had to sign a bond to receive some financial support during your teacher training. That bond meant that you also signed up to do two two years at a country school in New South Wales. So I did expect that I would have to do two years and I was fully prepared to do it, uh, but I had no intention of doing more than two years. But I stayed the whole two years there in Weabonga. And did it change you, um, this city boy? It changed me. Changed me totally. In what ways do you think? Well, I had to become uh, more managerial, I guess. I had to become on top of looking after 18 kids. You know, teaching's really interesting because it's one of those professions where you predict the future. You say, this is where we're going to be at the end of today, at the end of this week, at the end of term, at the end of the year. We're going to be at X. And then you take 18 people to X. Now, it's a really interesting career. Not many careers you have to do that with. Uh, Teaching is also a decision-making career. You've got probably something like 10,000 decisions a day to make. And I had at least that many. With 18 kids and 18 different curricular and 18 different syllabi, I was making decisions every couple of seconds. And so I became quite managerial. I became used to that. I became confident in my ability to handle that. Uh, It made me grow up a lot. Um, I had to accept the responsibility. I found that if I put my best foot forward, I could. All the isolation and being away from my family and being away from the person that I was having some romantic attachment to also made me grow as an individual and become much more mature. And do they still do this kind of thing with teachers these days? Uh, Not as much. Uh, There are some one-teacher schools around, but very few left. 
most of those that are left have a teacher's residence attached to them, so the living conditions are much better than they used to be. And, of course, every school now has such good communication technology. So every child, even if it is a small school with only 12, 15 kids, they've all got their own computer, they're all able to tap into the internet and to follow up all kinds of things. Uh, so, yes, it, it's still done now, but it's not done in anything like the way that it was when I was there in 1960. And do you know what happened to the children? Did you keep in touch with any of them? I went back to Weabonga for the first time after 60 years, after 59 years, last year. And what and was that like? <laughs> it was... Um, interesting I guess is the word one of my students was there of course all of my students are now old age pensioners <laughs> <laughs> so that was interesting quite a number of them four of them had gone on to university uh, a number of others had gone on to tertiary colleges and some of the boys in particular had become fairly large landholders in their own right, which they all wanted to be when I was there in 1661. That was the big ambition for the boys, to own their own properties. Yeah. And they were doing that. So they were all very successful, according to my confidant who told me all that. And I was really pleased to hear that. And reflecting back on those two years now, um, how did it impact the rest of your life, do you think? One of the things that I was attempting to do in those two years was to work out my own approach to teaching. When I started in, the, in 1958-59, it was very regimented. It was curriculum-driven. It was state-driven. There were timetables that every teacher in every school had to follow. The children were regimented. They lined up outside the school every morning, every recess and every lunch. They marched in in serried ranks. They sat in their desks and they were not allowed to do anything except what they were told. That did not suit me at all. <laughs> I found in my first couple of years of teaching that was not the way I wanted to approach kids. And I also found that children had a lot more um, potential than was obvious through that way of instruction. So I was really wanting to try my hand at child-centred education when I got to Weabonga and a small school with children in all those different grades was the perfect setting to try one's hand at child-centred education. I did that and I was confirmed in my belief that children would be happy and they would learn well. So for the rest of the time that I was in education, I was really concerned to promote child-centred education in whatever form it could be adopted. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I've been delighted to tell you all that, Siobhan. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, take care. And um, if people are interested in the book, it's called Bush School, and we'll pop links in the notes of the episode. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Siobhan. Bye. That was Peter O'Brien, author of Bush School. 
Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.